Joining me on the show today is Mike Young. Mike is the director of A Stand-Up Guy, a brand new film released exclusively on video-on-demand streaming services, starring Bob Saget. Stay tuned for this exciting interview. Hello, and welcome to Benjamin Mamakay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and joining me on the show today is Mike Young. Now, Mike is an American film director. He's directed a couple of films before, and they've been quite successful, but this time he's at the top of the iTunes charts at the moment with his new film, A Stand-Up Guy, which stars Bob Saget. Mike talks to me today about making that film, how it came to be, and his inspiration for being a director, as well as talking about his career as a stand-up comic, which has included winning an award at the Montreal Comedy Festival. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Mike Young. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me out there. Absolute pleasure, Mike. Now, what was your inspiration to pursue a career in comedy? I was an absolute class clown starting out. I just, you know, kind of looked at school like a fun environment to make people laugh instead of studying. And I just kind of took it to the next level. I used to always love stand-up. I used to watch Richard Pryor and Red Fox and Eddie Murphy. And I was, I was hooked on comedy TV shows like The Happy Days and all these great shows. And I used to just always dream about being a stand-up and writing. It was like a really strong daydream that I had that would keep me from actually studying. Well, it obviously ended, uh, ended you up in this career, so it's probably a good thing. Yeah, I, I tell every kid, every kid in the world, just daydream hard and, uh, yeah, daydream hard, be a, a little bit of a distraction in class and you'll be great. So, obviously, you always wanted to write and uh, where did directing come into it for you? Oh, I was always writing. I would read about directors that I loved. I would read about, like, the Billy Wilders or the Woody, I'd read about Woody Allen. I'd read about Mel Brooks and they were always starting as, they they. They were performers, and then they were writers, and then I read this thing where Woody Allen had written uh, one of his movies, and he didn't get to direct it, and he just was in so much pain watching what they did to his movie, and it kind of like stuck with me, and then I had a chance to write My Man is a Loser, which was my first movie that I directed, and when they were looking for a director, I just thought to myself, I could direct this because it's comedy. Comedy is rhythm. I knew the rhythms because I'm a comedian. So I just really had confidence that I could pull it off. And when they said yes, that's when I basically panicked and started buying books and, and following co- director friends around on set and really figuring it out. Mm. But I, I pulled it off. Obviously, because you've come back with a second film. So what's the writing process like for you? Uh, the writing process for me is... Um, like it starts obviously I mean it's if I start with the concept I'll usually write out an outline for myself before I go into a script I'll just write it as like a real raw just like a beat sheet I'll beat it out I'll like to always know what my ending is going to be so I kind of know where I'm going and then my process is just do everything in the morning except write while preparing to write. So I basically, I start cleaning my apartment. I'm looking around, I'm eating, I'm doing everything to avoid writing. And then ultimately sit down and I try to give myself like a 10 page a day goal. And so I'll just, my process is very, it's a lot of solitude, 
but it's a disciplined process where every day around, you know, 9.30, 10.30 in the morning, I start writing and I can push through probably two and a half, three hours and get some pages done and then, you know, let it go and go get a workout in. And then the next day come back and I look at what I wrote and then continue on and just you keep going till you get that 100 pages, 120 pages, whatever it is. And then boom, start from the beginning and start rewriting. So it's a process, man, but it takes discipline and it's definitely, you know, it's not that easy to be disciplined, but you have to be disciplined. There's no other way around it. You just, you got to do the work. Exactly. But in a world with so many distractions and especially distractions that come from your computer, uh, you know, which is, I assume, where you write from, how, how do you, you know, stay off Twitter and stay off Facebook and all those things that want to get in the way of writing? That's a great question because that's the irony of our business and it's it's people are always like you got to be on twitter more you got to be on this more and i always look at it like everything i do on social media is something i wasn't that i should have been doing in my script like I, any work i'm putting into social media should have been put into writing my movie writing my tv show so i am not i am not easily distracted and i'm actually trying more and more to put off a lot of this social media stuff that's going on, at least just for me personally. I know it's huge. It's worldwide, monster, promotion, social. It's huge. But as a writer, you have to turn the phone off. you got to turn off the distractions. And I figure if I can keep doing that, I'll be ahead of the game because I know everyone's distracted. So I feel like my work, my work output will be much better and stronger if I turn off the phone and I turn off Twitter and I turn off Facebook and all that. Mm. I mean, I, I know that, that's that's a fantastic way to work, and that's how I like to work as well. But I know there's this big fear, especially I suppose you know Facebook and with the phone even, that you're going to miss something important. And being in our industry, opportunities fly by very quickly. Do you ever have that fear of missing something that could have led to something even bigger? No, I, no. I, I used to have that fear, but no, because I, I have a simple philosophy, and it's just if you, I feel like if you do good work and you put it out there, then people will come. They'll, they'll come to you somehow. Somehow. It takes a long time. Believe me, it did not happen. You know, this is, this is 18, 19, 20 years of comedy, and it takes a while to get rolling. But I just believe if you do good work, they'll come. So I don't feel like I'm missing anything. I, I, stay, I still stay up on business opportunities. I don't close the door to any of that. But, no, I, I don't feel like I'm going to miss something bigger. I think I'm on the path of, of, you know, meeting the right people and, you know, finding the right opportunities. And uh, so, 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 no, I don't, I don't have that fear. It's probably a good way to operate. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe I had it for years. I had that fear, absolutely. And I was just grinding and hustling, trying to meet everybody. And then I met a few just good mentors in my life that were like, just put your head down, do the work, and and watch what happens. And then things started happening. They certainly you know? have. Now, I mean, you first really entered the public light during the Montreal Just the Last Comedy Festival. How did you end up performing over there? That was uh, that was a great opportunity that I still to this day feel like I'm so grateful for because it was one of the it was just one of the best moments of my comedy life. But I started out doing stand up in L.A. I was you know performing around Los Angeles. had like a couple thousand bucks left and I just kept I always wanted to have a comedy album I just I don't know why I just wanted to have a comedy album so 
one night I was opening for Joe Rogan, the comedian, and I recorded my half hour set in Arizona. And I used this janky recording that was just not high quality at all. I went into a studio for 30 bucks for an hour or two. I put it onto a CD. I had some friends come in and like do little sketches on it. And I did the artwork myself and I called it my comedy album. And so I had the album and a friend of mine sent it to somebody in Montreal at the festival. And they responded to it, and they called me and said, hey, we'd like you to be in our New Faces, uh, the New Faces category. And I didn't know what that was. They just said, you got to have six minutes. And so for like four months, I just just stressed myself out, trying to fine-tune six minutes. And boom, I didn't, you know, I had it prepared. I went to Montreal. I did it, and I got my first actual network deal out of there that paid me you know enough money to live for another year or two and it was just it was amazing i mean montreal comedy festival was definitely a highlight of my career and life to this day Mm. i mean it's certainly a huge deal in australia they film a whole lot of and air it on tv is it as big over there in the states it's huge montreal comedy festival just for laughs is is monstrous. It was, were you asking me if that particular festival is gigantic or you're saying comedy in general? I'm saying that that specific festival. Oh yeah. That is the premier comedy festival. Like there, obviously there's been a bunch of festivals trying to spawn from that, but that is the premier festival. I mean, it takes over all of Montreal, all the biggest names were out there. You know, Chris Rock was out there when I was like, Chappelle was out there. Attell, all the best guys in the game were out there and you know they were doing obviously they were doing the headlining gigs for an hour but yeah it was they got they got it's like a carnival atmosphere dudes on stilts clowns everywhere girls dancing in cages it was the party of the year i couldn't believe how big it was it certainly sounds like it now you mentioned that you were quite stressed about preparing those six minutes and obviously that's natural but there's a lot of stress that goes hand in hand with the performance industry how do you cope and deal with all that uh, I think exercise for me, I get my little workout in. So I de-stress and I learned not to take it. So like when I stressed out over six minutes, I was literally trying to make sure every single word, you know, wasn't lost. And, and I realized after, after having what I thought was not even really my best set, it wasn't even a great set and I still got a deal out of it. I decided I'm not going to make this a stressful thing i'm not going to kill myself over this it's you know it should be fun and it should just it should be hard work but i just try to have a good attitude you know get your exercise in de-stress and don't look at it like it's the biggest thing in the world you know we're not curing cancer we're just entertaining and trying to make it great so i just try to keep a kind of a level head with that i think Mm, take it one step at a time one, one step at a time, because it's stressful enough, believe me. Directing a movie, you're talking to 100 people a day, and half the time, you know, I don't have a directing background, so I didn't even know what the hell was going on. <laughs> so, I mean, how did you deal with that then, you know, having, I suppose, you know, no idea what, what you were doing? How You're in charge of so many people. How does that work? The, the good thing I had going was, <clears throat> was people skills that I think I developed through stand-up comedy from being in front of people for so many years and so many different personalities in front of me all the time, I think that that was a huge thing when it came to directing because I was able to just speak to everybody on the set, deal with everybody's ego, whether it was star or makeup, you know, everybody, different levels. I just got along with them and I just 
you got to be a really good listener, I think, for that. Mm, you and certainly cool. do. Yeah, so I just, you know, and I didn't shut anybody down, you know, and I just went, and I also prepared as much as possible. Like I said, I read every book on directing, and I talked to every directing friend, and I've been on set, you know, hundreds of times before for different reasons. So I just kind of definitely was nervous, but it all worked out. And when you're in the moment directing, you you're just in the zone because there's no time to really reflect on how nervous you can be. So I just stayed in the zone. Mm. Now, now in a world where there's lots of disaster and terrible things occurring, how do you get people to laugh? You go at the heart of it. You go, you go, you got to find funny in everything. So, you know, look, believe me, we've all had tragedy in our lives. So, to me, comedy's always been a great defense mechanism, and I just always kind of like looked at things in a funny way. And you know, you can't go out there just thinking about every single person. You know, comedy's escapism. So I just go out there with my act, ready to tell you know, get people to laugh. And I don't address the tragedies of the day unless they're funny. Unless you know, there's funny topics, and you know. That's I think I think you know in good times and terrible times people are always going to go you know are they're always going to love comedy, so I don't necessarily you know worry about the tragedy of of the day you know what I mean because mm. everybody's got their own personal stuff they're going through so you know you don't know you don't know what's going on in somebody's mind in the audience everyone's got some heavy stuff going on so I just do my thing try to make you laugh hopefully you come along for the ride and it makes your life a little better that's what you hope for that's what you hope for now how would you describe your style of comedy i would say observational edgy you know Mm -hmm. it's not i'm not a dirty comic but i'm edgy so i'm observational comedian who draws from real life you know, so I grew up in Detroit and I got a funny, you know, funny friends and I've got a fun, you know, funny family and I've always been kind of upside down in relationships. So I've always found humor and like, you know, in my point of view when it comes to, you know, girls and, you know, long term relationships versus being single. So I would just describe it as like literally edgy, observational, coming from real life. Mm. And is that the humor that most people connect with? For me, for sure, I find I've had people come up to me after shows and said, "Oh, I went through that exact thing with my girl. I wish you would talk to my girl." You know, you you know when you strike a chord with somebody, you know, and it's you know when you touch on like a universal theme. So yeah, for me, like I can only do comedy that comes from my real life. I'm not, I can't do political comedy. I can't read the paper and come up with jokes like a lot of comics can. It's just never, it just wasn't my natural style. So my natural style was just live and write about it and then tell about it. Mm. And it's obviously worked for you so far. Yeah, so far so good. You know, who knows? I could, tomorrow I might just stop being funny. It could all end tomorrow. <laughs> let's hope not. Yeah, let's, definitely let's hope not. <laughs> now, uh, you, as, as we've been talking about, you've written and directed a movie that comes out tomorrow called A Stand-Up Guy. What's the premise of the film? Uh, the premise of the film is low-level gangster, mobster, goes into the witness protection program. And while he's in witness protection, he does an open mic night on a dare. And so be, this guy becomes accidentally famous while the mob is trying to kill him. So it's a funny little gangster flick. And that's, that's the premise of it. 
Mm. It certainly sounds intriguing. And where can people see the film? They can see the film on iTunes starting tomorrow, and they can see it on demand starting tomorrow. And that's iTunes worldwide? Yeah, worldwide iTunes. Yep, it's going to be worldwide and worldwide video on demand. Fantastic. And now who have you got cast in the film? Uh, in the film is uh, Michael Rappaport, who's great. Uh, Ethan Suppley from Wolf of Wall Street. Bob Saget, who's been to Australia and done many shows over there, who's a good friend and a hilarious comedian and a great actor. Uh, and Danny A. Abacazer, who is the who plays the mobster. And Danny was in the movie Iceman. He's been in a bunch of movies. So it's a great cast. I got really lucky for an independent film. It's a really cool, talented cast. Mm, you certainly did get lucky. You've got some quite big names there. How did you get those people in, and what was the auditioning process like for you being a director on this film? Um, I got my leads through relationships. My, uh, Michael, Michael Rappaport had done my first movie, My Man is a Loser, so I already knew him, and I had a part that was perfect for him, so I just actually called him. And I asked him to read the, read the script, and he did. And he called me back. He said, I love it. I'm in. So that was kind of easy like that. And then my lead, Danny Abacazer, was a friend as well. And he read the script and loved it and loved the concept. And I had him. And then all the rest of the actors, I auditioned while in New York. So we shot it in New York. And we had the process just like any movie where you're bringing in, you, know, you hire the casting director, she shows you 10 people, you pick five out of that, they come in and they, do, they audition for you live, and it's really just a gut instinct process. So oh, a few, you know, Bob Saget, you know, I've known as well, and he loved the script and did it, but um, everybody else, you know, there are probably 50 roles that I had to cast out of New York. So that was a tedious process, but an interesting process nonetheless, because you know when the person's right, when it happens, you know, and then then you cast them, and then you go, you know, you talk through it, and it's it's really interesting, man. I, like I said, after this pro, after these last two movies, I respect actors in a huge way. What they have to go through, just in the auditioning process, and you you got to respect the talent. That's the bottom line. They bring it to life. It certainly is, and I wish I think a few more people in Hollywood would uh, would take on that view as well. Yeah, it's unbelievable that they don't sometimes because for me, it's uncomfortable enough seeing someone audition for you in a room. You know, you can't. Some people don't audition great, but yet they're great actors. So they got to change the process somehow, or it's got to. I don't know. It's just it's a really difficult thing. But you're lucky when you find the chemistry and the characters, and it, when it all comes together, you're definitely. You're lucky. Mm. And when it all comes together and you know, the script is good, then you've obviously got that hit in a film to sell. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we were lucky on this. You know, my first one, Lionsgate picked up, which was great. They're a great company. And then we shot a stand-up guy, and by the time post-production was done, we had our distribution company, The Orchard, in place. So, yeah, so we, we sold it right away. So the stress was kind of lifted early mm. for me. Right. And, from, and obviously for the finance, the guys that finance the film. How difficult is it to get an independent film financed over in America? You know, it's, it's interesting because you can, I always say that it doesn't cost anything to write great. It doesn't cost money to be funny. It doesn't, you know, and so nowadays 
you know, everybody's like, I'm looking to raise five million, a million. They're throwing these crazy numbers. And the truth is, if you've got two friends with a couple decent cameras, you can shoot something now that looks pretty damn good. So I don't know where, you know, what costs money is to get a star in your movie. You know what I mean? So you got to go pay, you know, you got to go pay uh, you know, Tom Hardy $4 million. Now your movie costs $4 million before you have a camera. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a catch-22. But I say if you think you're good and you think you got a good piece, go shoot it with your talented friends or at least shoot – a part of it, and then go show that to people, and then get fi- and then you can get financing because you just said, "Here is here's my project," and you don't have to pitch it, you don't have to have them read it; they can physically see it. So I'm a big advocate of, of going out and shooting it. Mm, well, it's, yeah, it's certainly a great way to do it. But I mean, obviously, the the plus side of having a star is it's more likely to be picked up if you haven't already got somebody backing it, and um, then obviously the publicity you'll get surrounding it would probably help the film get into a new league absolutely but it but it's interesting because you know everyone talks about the foreign market like none of my actors are big in the foreign market but here in america you talk about social media you know bob saget's got three million people following him and rapaport has got two million people and so those are real numbers and if you can you know let people like that spread the word to their followers then you're you're ahead of the game so Yes, you're you are correct that if you have a big if you have Leo if you have Leonardo DiCaprio's in your movie, you're gonna go sell every territory and you're gonna make millions you have guaranteed money coming in. With 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 people that don't sell foreign, you have a higher risk, but you just gotta be smart and keep your costs down and just you know, and utilize who's in your movie. Mm, absolutely. You know, but, but you can't get caught up in that. You gotta just try to make a great piece. And I and hope it gets out there. You know, I, I still want to believe in that. Oh, certainly. I mean, I mean, you know, speaking of Bob Saget, the timing for you has been fantastic because it was, you know, it was recently announced um, that he's in Fuller House, the, the sequel to the sequel series for Netflix, The Full House, and that's getting a lot of publicity and a lot more people are, you know, checking him out, checking his followers out, his past work. So that's got to have some sort of positive impact on the film for you. You know, it's 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 funny, man. It's it's had an amazing impact, and Bob is such a good dude. He's been promoting the movie himself, and yes, it's a it's an amazing time because I go on the road with him actually, and I still do a ton of comedy with him. So it's a great thing to see him making this great comedy. He's never gone anywhere. He's never been out of the picture, but he's having a great moment right now with Fuller House coming back and all his stand up, and now our movie. So it, it is. You're right. It's a good time and. And that Fuller House thing is going to be a monster for Netflix, for sure. It certainly is. Now, uh, back to your career. Was there a moment or experience you saw as a turning point? Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good question. Was there a turning point? Yeah, there was a turning point. When I, I wrote My Man is a Loser, uh, right, before, right before I wrote it, I was kind of getting down about the business. I just, I just didn't, I wasn't enjoying the business. My creativity was kind of a little lackluster. And then this movie, that movie, My Man is a Loser, had fallen into, through connections, relationships, they had hired me to write it. And after I directed that movie and it got out there, it definitely was a turning point. All of a sudden the phone was ringing and people were wanting to hire me to write and direct and so that obviously had never happened before but that was definitely a turning point and that was yeah a couple years ago 
is when I really started to feel like, oh, wow, people are actually hiring me for what I love to do. And, you know, so, so far the train's been rolling nice, nicely, but that was a turning point, you know, for, for filming, for writing and directing for sure. And stand-up comedy, I'm feeling like hopefully the turning point comes in the next year or so because I, I, I still love the art form and I could never give it up. Mm. So obviously you've been, I suppose, quite busy since your first film came out and you started writing out, you wrote that. So what have you been doing in between now and then? I have been just, to be honest, I've still been writing because a stand-up guy's coming out tomorrow and I was hired again to write another film. So I've actually just been working in between working. So while it seems like I'm not doing it working, I actually have another movie that I have to finish in a three-month period of time. So I'm just, I'm just working. You know, I'm not really... I should vacation somewhere. I should go somewhere and enjoy myself instead of rolling into my living room and writing with dandruff on my face. But I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything but working right now. So other than my hobbies of playing basketball and, you know, working out and going to the comedy store, I've really not been taking much downtime in between. Well, when you've got the work coming in, it's, it's better to do it now. Yeah, and if you can make it a part of your life, that's the that's what I'm living for. You know what I mean? Like I like, you know, if I get up and I, if I write at 10 a.m., great. But if I got to do something else, I'll, I'll write it too. You know what I mean? As long as I find that moment to get the work done, I'm trying to kind of make it part of my life, you know? Do you ever find it hard to get the inspiration to just start writing your block of, you know, set pages for the day? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? I, I, like I said, I'll clean my apartment. I'll cook a meal that I don't even want to eat. I'll take a walk around the neighborhood for no reason. I'll go get coffee that I don't want. I'll, I'll avoid writing oftentimes, you know. And it's not because I'm, like, having a block. It's just, you know, when you sit down, you know you're going to sit down for a few hours. And it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. So, so, yes, I do find it difficult sometimes to sit down. But... It's just like anything, the more you do sit down, the easier it gets, you know, the more discipline you get. Mm, exactly. So what advice would you offer to people who are looking to, to write full-time? If you're looking to write as your job, as your primary job, yeah, I would say, I'd say write what you love and get it done and, let, and have, it, have it in front of you and then start to share it with people. Just get it out there. And whether it's a screenplay or a short story, let people read it and, and see it and feel it. And then and, and that's it, you know, but have something that you love, that you believe in. And then I would just literally just get it out there. Just give it away. Let everybody read it and let them start talking and then let them say to somebody else, you got to read this guy's thing. It's incredible. And then that's how. It can get generated. Now, obviously, there's like the pro the professional route of that same thought, which is get the book on Hollywood, get every uh, you know, get every production company's information, send them the send them your piece. But a lot of times, the people don't read that stuff that comes in. So I would say break the rules. I would literally I would send it in a pizza box. I would throw a script over an actor's you know fence. I don't believe in any like basic rules. Like if you have something that you think is great, just get it out there somehow. 
you know, because there, there are no rules in this business. People act like there, there's no rules. There's just no rules. So first step, write something great that you love. Second step, get it into the hands of people no matter how you got to get it out there. Don't, you know, don't, don't threaten anybody. Don't do anything terribly illegal, but get it out there, you know? Yeah, whatever creative way you can get it into the hands of the right person. And there's stories like that all over the place. There are people who've sent scripts in pizza boxes and the movie has been great. It's gotten made. You know, if you're passionate about it, just get it out there. Mm, wise words. Yeah. Now, one, on, on television, you've got a very interesting project in the pipeline. You're working with Kanye West to write and create a comedy set in the world of hip-hop. How did this project eventuate for you? That project came about, I did some work with the guys from Entourage, the show Entourage on HBO, mm. and a mutual friend connected me to Kanye West's cousin. And so one day I got a phone call that from a friend who said, hey, I want you to meet this guy, Ricky, Kanye's cousin. Kanye wants to executive produce a TV series kind of loosely based on his early days in hip hop, like the very early days. I met with his people. I actually didn't even meet with Kanye. I just met with his people. And then I created an idea, um, basically entourage set in the world of hip hop, of a young rapper coming up, you know, against all odds. And he teams up with the guy that got fired from a record label. And together they build a label and they take this journey. So I, I created this, this idea and pitched it. we pitched it to Kanye's cousin. He pitched it to Kanye. Kanye said yes. And as of right now, we have a deal at Warner Brothers Studio for it, but we don't have a network yet. So that's just a, that's a show that's getting about to get pitched to all the networks. Mm. And we'll be going to Netflix soon and, you know, just doing the rounds of pitching. So that, that came about through a relationship and through some people that believed in my writing. Mm, well, that's got to be so it's very justifying so for good. you, knowing that people believe in your work enough to pass it on to people with, you know, even more power. Absolutely. I couldn't believe it. I, mean, I still haven't even met Kanye, but, but he signed on for the show, so it's pretty wild, you know? It certainly is. So that's something to look forward to this pilot season, then? Um, I, I, I don't want to misspeak on the timing of it, because we still we sold it to Warner Brothers, but we haven't found the network that mm. it's going to air on, but, but I'll let you know as soon as I know that information, you know, as soon as I know. But yeah, that, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Fantastic. Now, you've worked with and directed a lot of fantastic people. With working, when you work with those experienced and you know, well-known and talented people, do you learn from them? Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like I learn from everybody that I'm working with. But yes, I've worked, you know, I've, I, I got to, you know, I wrote a movie called Grounded that I did not direct, but I wrote, and Jeff Daniels, who's a legend, he was in it, and Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad, he was in it. So I got a chance to, like, watch those two great actors, and I learned a lot because they're totally different in their methods, but, you know, I, I absolutely learned a lot. And obviously, working with Michael Rappaport, who is one of my favorite actors, watching his method versus everybody else's method I, you know you learn from him too and you you learn how you can direct these guys you know some guys you can walk right up to have a full conversation other guys you got to kind of you know temper the way you talk to them and you know the way you deliver the message and you know how, how to get the performance out of them so i, I definitely learned from everybody that mm -hmm. i've worked with for sure and, and do you think in order to sustain a career in this age of entertainment, you have to have more than one string to your bow, like being able to write, direct, and perform, or produce and perform? 
You know, I don't know if it's like a necessity, but I feel like comedians like the Louis C.K.s and the Chris Rocks, I feel like they're – and um, you know, you go, like going all the way back, like I said, to the Woody Allens. Like I think if you are a natural performer of comedy, and that, it, then you already are a writer. You know what I mean? You, you write your material, so you're naturally – you're already a writer. And then to take it into script format, you're just, you got to just learn structure, which is just, you know, learning a structure. Anybody can, can learn structure. Um, but I don't know if it's necessary to be that. I just think it's a natural evolution for some performers to become writers and directors. And a lot of them become directors because they don't want to see their work get messed up. You know, they, they have a vision and it's too painful to watch something they wrote get turned into something they didn't see. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that first film that you wrote, but you didn't direct. How did that turn out in your eyes? Was it what you envisaged? No, I hated it. I'll be told, I hated the process. It killed me because I'll be totally honest. You know, I, I wrote and, it, and it, listen, the movie, it'll come out and it might be people might like it a lot. But for me personally, the experience of writing it and then watching it, somebody else take over and different machinations of it take place and watching the tone get changed, it, it killed me. Mm-hmm. It killed me. So I said, next time I go through this, I am definitely going to fight to direct. And that's why I've been kind of, that's why I've been directing. Just, you know, I was given the opportunity and listen, that doesn't mean I won't want to direct something that other people have written. Sure, I'd love that. But yeah, that, watching that get taken out of my hands as just the writer was painful. Mm-hmm. So, um, what kind of training did you undertake to uh, to master all these different crafts? You know, for, I'm definitely not a master <laughs> of the craft. You know what I mean? So, but thanks for throwing that term out. I think I still have a long way to go before I master any of them. But <laughs> but you can put that on your CV now. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, I think just doing it gets you closer to mastering it. Like, just keep doing it. You know, like there are classes you can take. There are obviously like master classes for writing and but I just I just write as much as possible to keep my voice strong, you know, and just to and just to know that I'm that I'm gonna deliver a good product. So, you know, to become a master at these, you, you just have to do them a lot, a lot. Repetition, right? They, when they say repetition is the father of learning, I, I believe that. Mm, very much so. Yeah. Now, how do you... Th- oh, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I still have quite a ways to go before I become a, a, a master because still, I'll still look up my favorite screenplays and, and read them and go, wow, these guys, they're, they're at another level, you know? Like, I'm good, but, yeah, I, I want to get to, like, Billy Wilder good, Woody Allen good, you know? So, uh, so who do you consider the, the greats, then, of, of writing and directing? Oh, Scorsese, Coppola, you know, even Tarantino is so original and amazing. You know, Woody Allen. I love Mel Brooks. Um, you know, just, just you know, kind of, those are the guys that I kind of grew up watching and loving. Like, I loved, I love, you know, Eddie Hall in Manhattan, and I love Tarantino's movies. Everything from Reservoir Dogs to Pulp Fiction was like a game changer for me. So... Um, and Mel Brooks, I'm a huge fan of his comedies, you know, History of the World and Blazing Saddles, like my favorite comedy of all time. So those are the guys that I just kind of emulate 
and and want to you know try to go down that path. Mm. Um, yeah, obviously, I there's guys like Stanley Kubrick that were true masters, but I, I could never write the things he wrote. You know, it's just not even in my wheelhouse. You know, I don't think anyone could quite write the things he wrote. No, no, I don't. I don't he probably could not write them again if he was around. You know what I mean, it was. He, it was lightning in a bottle, and uh, yeah, he was he he's he was a genius. You know that was he was next level. He, he certainly was. was. Own, he was building his own cameras for God's sake. After writing, mm. you know, an insane genius. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm solid, but you know, and hopefully people would just like my voice and what I'm doing, and and it's, it's working for me right now. But you know, there's there's guys that. They live, breathe, and eat this stuff. And, you know, Scorsese's probably, I mean, as far as a director, he's like, he's a god, you know? You look at what he does, he just, everything he does just comes to life in the craziest, amazing way. And it's just second nature to him now. It's, it's just in his blood. Mm. But then again, I suppose that once you do this enough, and that goes back to your, to what you're talking about with repetition. Once you do it enough, it would be in your blood, and you you know you do live and breathe and and eat all all of it, all of the industry up. That's it's, that's exactly why I said I'm just trying to make it a, a part of the fabric of my life. You know, mm. I go get lunch, I come back, I write a couple pages. I go out, I work out, I come back, I write a couple jokes. Yeah, so it just it's all staying. You're right. You just it just keep it feeding into your lifestyle. Absolutely. Now, how have you seen the film and comedy industries change since you first became involved with them? A lot more outlets and ways to get your movie or your projects out there to more eyes, obviously. You know, the digital age is here. You know, there's just more platforms to be heard, which isn't always a great thing because now anybody can just put their thing out there and there's, there's some terrible stuff out there. You know what I mean? So now, now you gotta sift through the bad stuff because you had an outlet. Mm. So it's good and bad, but for the most part, you know, I think just the distribution of it all is, has changed. But the comedy, I think it's cyclical, and you always you're always gonna come back to, you know, you're gonna have your Richard Pryor styles coming back, and your George Carlin styles coming back, and you know. Uh, I think it just, I think it keeps going in circles, you know, just big circles. Mm. Now, speaking of different mediums and ways to uh, to get things out, you also have a podcast. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, my podcast is called Stories That Need to Be Told, and it's on iTunes, and CBS Radio gave me a podcast deal because they had heard me on a bunch of different podcasts, so... They had heard me, and then my producer of the podcast, Jordan Winter, who produces Rappaport's podcast, came to me with the offer to do it, and I love it. I love that medium. I swear, it's it's a, it's just another great form of expression for me. Just like stand up, it feeds my stand up. It feeds the writing. It's a great platform, and I've been enjoying it. And it it yeah, it's called Stories That Need to Be Told. Uh, Mike Young. And it's on iTunes now, and it's on Play It, and it, uh, I'm digging it. I've got 12 episodes out, and we, we continue to, to record every week. Fantastic. It sounds, uh, sounds like something our listeners will want to check out. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Oh, much appreciated. Now, uh, now finally, for our fans who'd like to stay in touch, where can people find you? 
Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Real Mike Young, and they can find me on they can find me on Instagram at the Real Mike Young. And then uh, and then they could just find you know go enjoy the podcast and you know follow everything we talk about on there and just enjoy uh, you know stories that need to be told. Mm. And, no, I mean, I, I mean, I, I told you I'm terrible with the social media, but it's 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 bleeding, it's bleeding into me anyway. I can't help it, you know. And 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 I do, I, I am starting to see more and more people starting to really pay attention to the work that we're doing. So that's that's a positive thing. So hmm. yeah, find me on Twitter, Real Mike Young, Instagram, The Real Mike Young, and stories that need to be told. Thank you very much, Mike. And your film, A Stand-Up Guy, is out tomorrow, Tuesday, the 9th of February. Yes, thank you so much, man. A Stand-Up Guy, iTunes Worldwide, On Demand Worldwide. It's a fun, funny comedy, and absolutely, man, enjoy it. Thank you very much, and all the best for the release. Thanks, great talking to you. And you. That was my chat with Mike Young, and you can purchase his film, A Stand-Up Guy, on iTunes Worldwide. Now, as always, I'd like to thank our supporters. That's Mad Zombie Collectibles, Roadshow Entertainment, Madman Entertainment, and of course the wonderful Palace at Nova Cinemas. Now, in the past month, I've had the opportunity to check out some wonderful films, and you can read my film reviews online at preacherspodcast.net under the movie reviews section. Well, we'll be back in March. I've been your host, Benjamin May McKay. See you next time.